morning and turn with me to 1 Chronicles chapter 29, the last chapter in this first book of the Chronicles. Before we look into the word, let's pray and let's ask, let's ask God to open his word to us. He might change us. Let's pray. God of heaven, You've been gracious to us in the Lord Jesus, and we are here to worship because of him. We come with great joy because of all that you have forgiven us, and because you encourage us and beckon us to come to you with joy in our hearts. You, you call us to delight in you. We thank you, Father, for your love towards us, your mercy and grace in the Lord Jesus that changes our hearts makes us willing to worship and finds in you a God who loves us and who encourages us to come into his very presence. Help us now to learn today of worship and we'll give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever been visiting somewhere and you wanted to find a place to worship on the Lord's day? You see this little church on a corner in the middle of town, and you say, that looks good, let's attend there tomorrow. And so the next day you arrive about 10 minutes before the service that's stated on the board begins, and you walk in and there's an older guy there and he's handing out bulletins and he says to you, good morning, and gives you a bulletin and that's it. You, so you wander into the sanctuary and find your way in and you see a couple sitting on the second row over to your left and they kind of glance over their shoulders at you. And soon about 20 people dribble in by ones and twos, and none really say anything to you, but they all take their places in the pews as if they've got assigned seats and sit down. Eventually the pastor gets up, gives a kind of welcome, and then leads the congregation in a song, and you ask yourself, I wonder who died because there's no enthusiasm as you sing ponderously and slowly for, through the first hymn and, and the second hymn and the third hymn. And when the pastor preaches, the congregation looks like the saddest collection of people you've ever witnessed, heads down, shoulders drooping, just kind of listening as the pastor drones on and on. And when you leave the church that morning, you say to your husband, have you ever seen such a joyless, gray congregation and worship in your life? Now here's the question. How effective do you think that congregation is going to be in that community with such gray, lifeless worship? Well, now as we come to the 29th chapter of 1 Chronicles, you see just the opposite occurring. In this chapter, you see a worship service that, uh, that's characterized by rejoicing and feasting and praising and singing before God at the inaugura inauguration ceremony for the new king, Solomon. So I want, I want you to look with me at this worship service as it's described in this chapter. All right? First Chronicles 29, and we'll read that as we come to it. I won't read the whole thing now and then repeat it. We'll just read the sections as we come to it. But what you find here is this incredible worship service of great joy before the Lord. 
Now, you recall from last week that this is a special assembly of God's people. It's been called together to inaugurate the new king and the temple builder, Solomon. And David has a tremendous devotion to the temple. We've seen that in, in the previous weeks, how David has a tremendous devotion to this temple. He wants to build it. God says you can't. And so what he does is he gets everything you could possibly get together in order to build this temple. But David also has a vital concern for the worshipers. And in chapter 29, he challenges them to consecrate themselves to the worship of the temple. You see that. In the, in the middle of all this, in verse um, 5, where he says, who then, will offer will, who then will offer willingly consecrating himself today to the Lord? Now, there's a reason why the chronicler includes this story of this incredibly joyful worship service in this book. He writes for God's people, who are often discouraged because they seem so small and their cause so insignificant. Remember, he's writing this to the people who've returned from the exile, who are now uh, under their Persian overlords. They're not a nation. They're nothing but a province in this great empire, ruled by other kings, not their Davidic king. And so they're discouraged they seem so small and so insignificant. And that's, you remember, that's the setting of this chapter. And so what the writer does is draws attention to their history. And he says this, look, you do not find our greatness in our military victories or our national prominence. We were great and should be great when we are one people united around one king, joyfully worshiping at one temple. And so, as he retells the story of David's final days as the king, he recounts this last assembly where the king leads his people in joyful worship as they look to the new king who's going to build the temple. And so David, the king, as he passes the mantle of authority to his son Solomon, leads the people in this incredibly marvelous, joyful worship service of giving and thanksgiving to God. And the greatness of God's people will always be found in our joyful worship. Always keep that in mind. Our joyful worship will set us apart. Well, he says, enter into the joy of worship through giving. Let's look at the first nine verses of this chapter. You enter into the joy of worship through giving. And David, the king, said to all the assembly, Solomon, my son, whom alone God has chosen, is young and inexperienced, and the work is great. For the palace will not be for man, but for the Lord God. So I have provided for the house of my God, so far as I was able, the gold for the things of gold, the silver for the things of silver, and the bronze for the things of bronze, the iron for the things of iron, the wood for the things of wood, besides great quantities of onyx and stones for setting, antimony, colored stones, all sorts of precious stones and marble. Moreover, in addition to all that, I have provided for the holy house. I have a treasure of my own of gold and silver. And because of my devotion to the house of my God, I give it to the house of my God, 3,000 talents of gold, of the gold of Ophir, and 7,000 talents of refined silver for overlaying the walls of the house, 
and for all the work to be done by craftsmen, gold for the things of gold and silver for the things of silver. Who then will offer willingly, consecrating himself today to the Lord? Then the leaders of the fathers' houses made their free will offerings, as did also the leaders of the tribes, the commanders of thousands and of hundreds, and the officers over the king's work. They gave for the service of the house of God 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, and 100,000 talents of iron. And whoever had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord in the care of Jehiel, Jehiel the Gershonite. Then the people rejoiced because they had given willingly, for with a whole heart they had offered freely to the Lord. David the king also rejoiced greatly. Now hear the invitation here to this great joyful worship in verses one through five as David calls them to worship. He says this temple, this place for the worship of God is the palace of the king of kings and no man, especially the young and inexperienced Solomon is capable of building it. He says, if it were only for a man, why, that wouldn't be a problem because all we'd have to do is make it bigger and more complex than the guy before. But instead, this temple will display the brilliant splendor of God, the glory of his justice, the riches of his mercy to sinners, and the place where Jehovah will display his ownership and sovereignty of the whole earth. And he says, I'm devoted to the construction of this sanctuary. And in that devotion, I've attempted to help. I've contributed great quantities of precious materials, the spoils of war, and the accumulated wealth of a king. But now, he says, I'm going to give for my own personal wealth. You notice that. He says, I've given all these things, but he says, now I'm going to give. Moreover, in addition, verse 3, moreover, in addition to all that I've provided for the holy house, I have a treasure of my own of gold and silver. And because of my devotion to the house of my God, I give it to the house of my God. Now he says, I'm taking it from my own personal resources, the resources he has from his lands and, and everything else. And he says, I'm going to give that as well. Who of you is willing to join me and to consecrate yourself to the Lord? Who is willing to do that? You do it as well. Enter into joyful worship through giving. Here's the invitation he gives Enter into joyful worship through giving. Now, notice carefully the quality of that giving. What is that giving? What is the giving that brings joy in worship? In verse 2, um, so I have provided for the house of my God as far as I was able, right? As far as I was able, the gold and so on. And he says, in verse 3, um, moreover, in addition to that, I have provided for the holy house, I have a treasure of my own of gold and silver and so forth. He gives exhaustively. You know, it's possible for wealthy people to give a lot of money and still keep a lot. Right? They still they may give a lot, but they're not giving generously because they hold back far more than they give. They hold back far more than they give. Really, the only limits on our giving are the limits of our wealth, how much we have, and our lawful obligations. 
How much do we owe the bank? And how much do we owe the taxes? How much, how many, how much taxes do we owe? That's the only limitation we have. I'm taking care of my family, of course. But you know, there's a generosity here that, that's incredible to see. There's joy when you give exhaustively, when you, when you give generously, incredibly generously. Verse 3, you give personally. You know, many people look at candidates and the candidates, the political candidates will say, look, with me, you're going to get all your drugs paid for. All, everything's going to be paid for, right? All your education, we'll pay for that. And people say, wow, what a generous guy. Is he generous? No. He's using other people's money to do that, even yours to do those things. That's not generous at all, right? But David proves generous because it comes from his own personal wealth. So not only does he give from, from the resources he has as king, but he does it as his own personal wealth. He also gives. It's personal. Generous giving happens when it's personal, when it costs you something, when it's you that's giving generously. And that kind of sacrifice will always bring joy. He gives willingly. Verse 6, give willingly, he says. Um, then the leaders of the father's houses made their free will offerings, as did also the leaders of the tribes, the commanders of thousands, of hundreds, and the officers over the king's work. They gave for the service of the house of God all this amount. They gave willingly. David did not levy a tax on these leaders. He did not levy a tax on them. They willingly gave like you, think how happy you are on April 15th when you pay your taxes. You're never so willing as on that day, right? <laughs> it's, it's a low point of the year, isn't it? In fact, it's so low that you're saying, I'm not putting my check in until the 15th. I'm not going to give them my money a week early, right? It's not real willing. It's compelled. Because if you don't give, you could end up where you don't want to be. And so they gave without compulsion. David doesn't threaten them. David doesn't levy a tax. He just says, why don't you give? And so they give. They give generously. They give in this way. And they do it without fearing consequences. They're not compelled in any way to give. Now, I have friends in ministry. And, and I love them dearly. They're very close friends of mine. They have incredible ministry. Um, but they believe that part of their shepherding task is, includes helping people to give generously. So they know what people give. And I say, you guys, you may have good intentions. And they do. They do have good intentions. But in their good intentions, what happens? You have people who feel compelled to give because someone's looking over their shoulder. And they're, not, they're doing it under compulsion. And maybe times not, 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 people will still give willingly, but there's still that point of ah, the compulsion that may be there. And, in, and what we find in 2 Corinthians 9 is this. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And that's what's happening here. They are not giving under compulsion. They're giving willingly. All right? Now, look at the joy that results in that giving. Verse 9. Then the people rejoiced because, because they had given willingly, 
for with a whole heart they had offered freely to the Lord, to the Lord. David the king also rejoiced greatly. Can you see this infectious joy that spreads as they give generously and willingly? There's a whole atmosphere of joy that descends on the congregation. Listen, I'm saying exactly what you're hearing. If you really want joy in worship, be generous. Be generous. Now look, the Bible never defines generous, generosity. Okay? It doesn't define generosity. But you know it. You know what's being generous. Right? Um, give generously and you will find joy. Now I want to say that under the new covenant and the lordship of Jesus, we don't just sacrifice our money. Right? In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, now if you want to know about giving, 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 are the classic passages on what giving under the new covenant is like. Read those. But in chapter 8, Paul makes a fascinating statement about the Macedonians. He said, For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. Notice, they gave themselves first to the Lord. All right, it's giving of yourself that's important. But always remember this, the stewardship of your money is a tremendous indicator of your heart. It's a tremendous indicator of your heart. Keep that in mind. It's interesting that me, you know in that passage in the New Testament where Jesus says, you have a choice. You either serve mammon, you serve money, or you serve God. Those are your choices. And what he does by saying that is saying, Money is like another deity. It's like another God. And it clamors for your allegiance. Right? And so listen, when, when it's hard for you to let go of money, when it's hard for you to give, to help others, to help the ministry of God, if it's really hard for you, look at your heart. All right? Let me tell you something. If you want to know where your heart is, open your checkbook. Or look at your bank statement, because you're always using credit cards and debit cards anymore. But look at your bank statement and see where your money is going. I challenge you on that. You know, one of the things, and I'll be honest, as a pastor, when I look at our budget at church, and I, I see that that we have, um, we have to, this is what we need every week, all right? And if, and when I see that we're exceeding the budget, I'm a happy man, not because we have more money, but because that says something about the hearts of God's people, okay? Boy, I don't want to belabor this, but, and, I'm, and I'm not bragging here, okay? I, I, I'm not bragging but this is one thing that really showed me our people's hearts. We had Josh Haas. Some of you know Josh. Josh is the one that 
one of our elders that we sent out to plant a church in Marion. So Josh is the pastor of New City Fellowship, a sister church of ours in this church now. And Josh was going to go to seminary, and the seminary was free, except for the fact that, um, except for the fact that Josh had to show, or we had to give him at least twenty thousand dollars for him to attend that free seminary. And so, you know, we went to the church, and we said, we want thirty thousand. All right. We want 30000 That was going to add 30000 to our budget. And it happened. And I rejoiced in that, not because we got more money. I rejoiced in that because that said, these folks want to see God's word advanced more than they want their money. So the stewardship of your money is a great indicator of the allegiance of your heart. But, you know, we have everything to gain. It really is no sacrifice to give to the Lord. Now, at my house, if I attempt to put tiles in the shower or to fix something, it seems like an incredible sacrifice for me because my skills in those areas are severely limited. We have a saying at our house. What you can do in five minutes, I can do in two hours, okay? So I don't have very many skills at that. It seems like a sacrifice at first. But then, and bless her heart, my wife is happy when I actually do something. She's happy about that. Doesn't, in fact, it doesn't even have to be really good. The fact that I just did it gives her great joy. And so when she's rejoicing about that, I share in her joy. So it doesn't seem like a sacrifice. So when it comes to giving, right? You want joy? Give generously. It may seem like a sacrifice, but you will reap joy in that. It makes the sacrifice not so sacrificial. And I'm not kidding you. If you are generous, you will find great joy. So enter into the, wor- into the joy of worship through giving. Now he also says, enter the joy of worship through praise, verses 10 through 20. Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly, and David said, now I want you to watch carefully these words. These are incredible words. This ought to have an impact on our joy in giving and in worship. Notice how he describes God and all that God has and does. Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I, and what is my people, that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own we have given you. 
For we are strangers before you and sojourners as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow and there is no abiding. O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. In the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things. And now I have seen your people who are present here offering freely and joyously to you. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts towards you. Grant to Solomon, my son, a whole heart that he may keep your commandments, your testimonies, and your statutes, performing all, and that he may build the palace for which I have made provision. Then David said to all the assembly, bless the Lord your God, and all the assembly blessed the Lord, the God of their fathers, and bowed their heads and paid homage to the Lord and to the king. And they offered sacrifices to the Lord, and on the next day offered burnt offerings to the Lord, a thousand bulls, a thousand rams, and a thousand lambs with their drink offerings and sacrifices in abundance for all Israel. And they ate and drank before the Lord on that day with great gladness. David now leads this great assembly in a prayer of praise, turning from themselves to God. In your praise, if you want to have joyful worship, in your praise, recognize the absolute sovereignty of God. He is sovereign in his being. The God of the patriarchs existed before they did. He has no beginning and no end. He's sovereign over the earth. This God is great, powerful, glorious, majestic, victorious, and full of splendor because everything that exists belongs to him. You notice that he says that. Everything that exists belongs to him. I step outside at night. I look up in the sky. I listen to what's going around me. Every little tree frog. (laughs) Every cricket. Right? Every bird that sings. All the fields around my house, all the blades of grass in my yard, they all belong to God. They all belong to God. Every year I used to go out to Montana for several years to teach at a little Bible institute in, um, near Kalispell, Montana, just on the other side of the Roskies. And I can remember, you could walk out on that in the Bible Institute's ground and you can look to the east and there are these it seemed like it was just across the lake, these massive mountains. And I'd go out at night and I'd see the moon coming up over those mountains or coming across, right? And it was just unbelievable. And so I'd look at that. God owns these mountains. God owns that moon. God owns everything that, meets, that greets my eyes. He is sovereign over the earth. He is sovereign over the kingdom. David and Solomon are famous for their wealth, wisdom, and power, only because God gave it to them. He says what? You give wealth, you give honor. Right? It's because of you that we have this wealth. It's because of you that we have this honor. And so you recognize then, um, you recognize then his sovereign over the kingdom. And notice again, and and by the way, when you read through the Old Testament, notice this. um, That it's it's God's kingdom. They're, they're, They're sitting on the throne because of God. In your praise, recognize the gracious sovereignty of God. If you want to see God's grace, then see your position in comparison. Verses 14 and 15. Right? Who are we? 
Who are we? Right? Uh, what accounts for our generous giving? Not our power or sufficiency, because it all originates with God. Without God, we are powerless. And he says, we're like aliens and strangers in the land. We're like aliens and strangers. Now, what does he mean by that? He simply means an alien stranger in the, in the land of that day meant someone without property, someone without security, someone who is dependent on the citizens of that nation. Those are aliens and sojourners, okay? And so he says, if you didn't give us all this, well, he's saying we're like aliens and strangers. We're dependent on you. You give us all of this. And in fact, even though they now possess the land because of David and his victories, the land belonged to Yahweh, to Jehovah, to the Lord. Look at um, Leviticus 25 for a moment. Leviticus 25. Um, verses 23 and 24. Um, The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. And in all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. In other words, he had some, he makes it clear to them they have some strictures on what they can buy and sell and what they can bind over to others because the, the property doesn't belong to them. The land belongs to the Lord. They're aliens and strangers there. So even though they may possess wealth and security, life remains a shadow. Notice David says, we're just a shadow here. We're just here for a short time. You're just a shadow. And hope can never rest in those riches. So you recognize the gracious sovereignty of God. Look at God's gracious generosity. Look at verse 14. Um, the last part, for all things come from you and of, of your own have we given you. And then he says in verse 16, O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. Again, this is God's gracious generosity. He's giving to them. Everything that they've given, he gave to them. And then look at God's gracious testing in verse 17. You're testing our hearts. He's not, looking, he's not looking at the amount. He's looking at the heart. Okay? It's not the amount that matters. It's the heart that matters. Okay? Now that's good. I think that's really good, don't you? God's looking at your heart. If he's, and if you're saying, wow, this is, I want to give this to the Lord. It's generous. He owns it. I'm just going to give it back to him. He's looking at your heart, not the amount that you're bringing in your hands. Wouldn't you love to buy a car like that? You say to the guy, look, I know you want 15000 for it, but I'll give you 10000 But look, I'll give it willingly. I won't complain. I just, I'll, just, I'll just hand it over to you. What do you think? See, that's not how God operates. He looks at your heart, right? And your attitude. If you really want to see the greatness of joyful worship, then have a great view of God and a humble view of man. Lord, 
Who are we? We're aliens and, and sojourners in your land. Who are we? All we're doing is giving you everything you gave us. Right? You'll see God's gracious generosity to you, right, when you recognize how you compare to God and what you're doing. In your praise, ask God for enlarged hearts for worship. Verse 18, right? Verse 18. Um, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers keep forever such purposes. I'm sorry. Keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts towards you. David prays that God would grant them generous and loyal hearts and that Solomon would have the same. Do you ever pray for that? Do you ever pray that God would give you a loyal heart? Lord, give me a loyal heart to Jesus that everything, I will always stand for him, right? Do you pray that God would make you more generous? Do you pray for opportunities for generosity? Do you pray that God would give you a heart that remains loyal and that you'd give yourself in wholehearted devotion to the Lord? And you know what? God answers that prayer in Jesus. You will find great generosity as you consider the indescribable gift of Jesus. Christ as Savior captures your heart so that we'll never stray from God. His commands are written on your heart. We will stray. The corruption of the flesh remains, and so we ought to be praying, God, give me a loyal heart. Enlarge my heart to give generously. Enlarge my heart so that I will love you and give for you. And so then you'll find great joy and delight when you look at God in his sovereignty. And then finally, enjoy the worship of, uh, enter the joy of worship through submission. Okay? And they made Solomon, the son of David, king the second time, and they anointed him as prince for the Lord and Zadok as priest. Then Solomon sat on the throne of the Lord as king in place of David, his father. And he prospered, and all Israel obeyed him. All the elders and the mighty men, also all the sons of King David, pledged their allegiance to King Solomon. And the Lord made Solomon very great in the sight of all Israel and bestowed on him such royal majesty as had not been in any king before him in Israel. Thus David, the son of Jesse, reigned over all Israel. The time that he reigned over Israel was 40 years. He reigned seven years in Hebron and 33 years in Jerusalem. Then he died at a good age, full of days, riches, and honor. And Solomon, his son, reigned in his place. Now the acts of King David from first to last are written in the Chronicles of Samuel the seer and in the Chronicles of Nathan the prophet and in the Chronicles of Gad the seer with accounts of all his rule and his might and of the circumstances that came upon him and upon Israel, upon all the kingdoms of the countries. All right, enter the joy of worship through submission. The people now show their submission to both kings and to the king of kings. And, and they show themselves as they prostrate themselves before David, as it says in verse 20. And all the assembly blessed the Lord, the God of their fathers, and bowed their heads and paid homage to the Lord and to the king. Then the very next day, they acknowledge Solomon as king and they anoint him. Now it says here they anoint him for the second time. The chronicler assumes that you know his story. 
which is found in 1 Kings um, chapter 1. There you see that Adonijah, Solomon's older brother, made an attempt to overthrow the king. It was a palace coup. And Adonijah gathered around him a number of men, and he made a play for the throne. And he failed. He failed in that. And so the writer is assuming you know that story. And so, um, and so he's saying, for the second time, Solomon's anointed and made king. Now, notice that he is recognized as the ruler over God's kingdom. It's fascinating to me, and, and I would encourage you, look for this phrase. When you think about the kingdom of God in the Old Testament, the kingdom of God was the nation of Israel, and the king who ruled the nation was ruling over the kingdom of God. Notice what it says in verse uh, 20, 23. Then Solomon sat on the throne of the Lord as king. Note, the throne of Israel is the throne of the Lord, and he's on that. And so God's people pledge their loyalty and submission to Solomon. All right? Now, do you see what transpires when the people submit to God's appointed ruler? What happens? You find a great celebration of feasting, worship, and all those sacrifices, and joy in the presence of the Lord. They submit to him, and they find great joy. You know, um, as I was reading this over this last week, and reading it on the way up here, and reading it this morning, um, I got to thinking, what would it have been like to live at the end of David's reign and the beginning of Solomon's reign? When there was all this incredible joy in their worship. And then I had to think, well, wait a minute. <laughs> we can experience that. We can experience that because... The reign of Jesus fulfills the reigns of both these kings, the conqueror and the peace, uh, the, the king of peace, who builds the prosperity of the nation. We do have that in God's kingdom as we're in it now, this universal kingdom, this kingdom that's, that's not like visible to the eyes except to see the people in it. Solomon is, uh, Jesus fulfills, he's both conqueror and the one who brings peace and prosperity, spiritual prosperity to us now, joy and peace, and the fact that we can have joy in worship because of what he has done. As we submit to this king, there will be joy in worship. How often do we think that submission to Jesus is a, is a great sacrifice, is a chore? He is a good king. He is a gracious king. He loves us. He loves us not because of how well we're doing this week, but because of what he's accomplished, right, for us. We have this great and mighty king, and as we submit to him, we will find great joy in worship. And if we're not finding joy in worship, then we need to ask, okay, am I submitting to the king as I should? Here is one who conquers all our foes, right? He's conquered our spiritual foes, and there's a day yet to come when he will conquer all the rest of them. He's begun his conquest already. He will finish it someday. Only in submission to this king will you find joy in worship. So the question is, 
First of all, am I finding joy in worship like I should? Am I finding joy? If not, the chronicler tells us to look, first of all, at our giving. Right? At our giving. Look at our giving. Am I giving generously? Now, I'm not, I'm not here to say, okay, everybody, beat you with a stick and say to give more. You know what generosity is, but I'm saying to you, as you give out of your resources to the work of God, you will find great joy. You will find that joy. Um, and guess what? You don't have to worry about being too generous because Jesus made us all a promise. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. What things? All the normal things of life. Seek his kingdom. Seek his kingdom with your money, with, with your lives, and he'll make sure you have everything you need. So I've got to ask, what's my giving like? I've got to ask, am I submitting to the Lord? Am I submitting to the Lord Jesus? Um, if I do, I'll find joy. And even, listen, even when I find myself not submitting, I find forgiveness, right? I find forgiveness. And, and Jesus saying, okay, you're forgiven. Let's keep going. Let's keep at it. All right? Get up and keep going. We find joy in that. As we submit, we find joy as we recognize the sovereignty of God. So the greatness of God's people will be seen in their joy, in their worship. Let's ask God to help us with that, shall we? Father, thank you that we can have joyful worship in your presence. That we, like the Israelites, can rejoice before you. We may not be here with a lot of feasting, and we're certainly not here with sacrifices, but we're here because of the sacrifice of Jesus, and we are here to joyfully worship you. God, help us to do that. Help us to do those things that will lead to our joy. Help us to look to Jesus, who will give us this joy as we continually look at him. Help us, Lord, we pray, for your great name. So that, Father, people who would walk into this congregation would find a congregation of joy. So, Father, we pray that you would help us in that regard. In Jesus' name, amen.